On this episode of This Week in Linux, we have a jam-packed episode with big releases from Ubuntu, KDE Plasma, Antics, RPM, and more. We also got some really interesting news from a BSD-based project that is migrating to Linux. We'll also cover an interesting security topic regarding sudo that has been making the rounds recently. Samsung announced the end of the Linux on Dex project. Google is finally releasing AMP to the community. And later in the show, we'll check out a really cool Linux client for the PlayStation 4 remote play feature, and also some new Humble Bundles. All that and much more coming up. I'm Michael Tanell with Tux Digital and the Destination Linux Network, and this is your weekly source for Linux good news. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. You can get this plus access to their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. DigitalOcean also has 2,000 cloud-agnostic tutorials to help you stay up-to-date with the latest open-source software, languages, and frameworks. And those tutorials are very awesome. There's actually, most of the time, I've, I've used these things even when they weren't even cloud-related. So, like, these things, these tutorials are quite useful whether you're using cloud stuff or not. Uh, they Also, you can get started on DigitalOcean for one month for free with a $50 credit by going to do.co slash tux. That's do.co slash tux. Again, you can get it started on DigitalOcean with that $50 credit by going to do.co slash tux. And thanks again to DigitalOcean for sponsoring This Week in Linux. A first in the show this week is Ubuntu 19.10, as well as all the Ubuntu flavors in addition, because they all released at the same time like they normally do. So first of all, we're going to talk about Ubuntu 19.10, the proper, Ubuntu proper, I guess. And that is the latest version has GNOME 3.34, and that has a lot of updates to, say, the NVIDIA drivers, for example, are now available uh, on the ISO during the install. And so when you, it's actually on the image. So when you install Ubuntu and you have an NVIDIA uh, hardware, you can you be able to use the drivers built into the ISO to easily and quickly get access to using the proprietary drivers if you choose to do so. So, for example, if you were going to play games or you know render video or things like that, you would kind of need those drivers. So it's nice to have them you know, really easily accessible, um, you know, for NVIDIA users. Uh, they've also finished the 32-bit uh, support, the 32-bit app support. Well, technically, they're still working on whether or not to, like, add some more packages in the future for, like, 2004, but the current set is they have uh, they have removed a lot of the repo for 32-bit but kept all the libraries, which is very important. So that's great to, you know, see that they actually did go, go through with that. Uh, they've updated to the Linux kernel 5.3. Pulse Audio has been updated to 13.0. Uh, there's also flicker-free boot uh, improvements for Intel users, as well as they've get, gotten, done some improvements to the Ubuntu dock uh, and also revamped some, some aspects of their GTK theme, Yaru. They've also made some changes for the GNOME shell, which is kind of interesting because they took some elements that, like, when you click the calendar section or the time, it'll show you the calendar, and that, that it used to be, like, a dark theme, but now they change it to a, like a, a bright theme, and uh, I'm not really a fan of that. But I'm curious to see what everybody else's opinion on that particular topic is, because I can understand why some people would like that, and some people wouldn't. But personally, I don't. Really, I think that it was uh, there's no reason to change that. And anyway, one more thing that we had to cover, and that is the support for ZFS. So this is an experimental thing, but the 19.10 release of Ubuntu has 17 uh, has the 
has ZFS file system included as an option, even for the root system. So that this potentially has a many benefits. So if you're not aware of ZFS, it is a file system that was created a long time ago by Sun Microsystems. And it is uh, been around for like 20 years now. And it's pretty robust and it has a lot of great features like encryption, uh, trimming support, uh, checkpoints. It has uh, snapshotting support. It has uh, raw encrypted transmissions. Um, it has a project accounting and quota system. It has all kinds of different features. And uh, the, probably the biggest benefit of it is that it has the ability to do snapshots and rollbacks. So by adding this to Ubuntu, it makes it possible for like in the future when you do an update, if something didn't work, you could roll back to that version of the previous version and be good to go immediately. It's kind of like how OpenSUSE does with ButterFS because they already have that with their ButterFS setup for their root. Uh, but their Ubuntu decided to use ZFS for that. And while it is experimental right now, it is something that is very interesting to see you know, what happens with this because I think having ZFS on the root would be really interesting, provided that it's only for the root system and not for like everything because um, it's not... It's not the best file system for literally everything, but it's a really interesting file system for the root as well as uh, storage devices. So I'm really interested in see what happens here. And also where we got to talk about some uh, Ubuntu flavors because the Ubuntu flavors of Ubuntu Mate has done a lot of really good things in the, in the polish of the system. They have this basically like they call it the paper cut edition release because they fixed a ton of different paper cuts. And it's like they, they had a lot of a new QA team working on improving various different aspects and finding small bugs and fixing them to like, you know, eliminate the paper cuts as much as possible, which is really nice because it is a lot smoother than it was previous, previous uh, releases. So that's awesome. Uh, they've also got uh, Kubuntu's release and latest version, which updates uh, KDE Plasma and uh, many other things like that. They have Ubuntu Budgie has released um, some, their new version, which has a lot of in, uh, updates to various packages and includes some new accessibility features for like on-screen keyboard and magnifier and some other stuff. So that's really nice to see because I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of projects, you know, keeping in, um, keeping in mind the accessibility aspects of using a computer and how important that is. So when the, them adding that is very nice to see. Uh, Zubuntu also has an update to the XFCE packages and everything, so like related to uh, 4.14. Uh, Lubuntu has a lot of updates for their LXQ packages. And finally, for the Ubuntu section, we also got the code name for the, tw the 2004 LTS is now going to be called Focal Fossa. So there you go. That's it for Ubuntu this episode. So if you want to learn more about what the different releases for all the different flavors, I'll have a link to the uh, all the different flavors, their release notes, in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the latest release from KDE for the Plasma 5.17 release. And this has a lot of improvements to uh, various different polishing features. They've done a lot of bug fixes and performance improvements and all kinds of stuff. We're not going to cover everything because there's a lot of different things. We're going to cover like the overview and like the bigger biggest things. So, for example, they have added a factional scaling support for high DPI users in Wayland. They have improved startup times by removing bash scripts to C++ and loading them asynchronously. So, improve like one of the issues that I have with Plasma is that it's it sometimes takes a long time to boot. There are multiple uh, tricks to make it even faster, but I'm glad to see that the whole overall thing is getting improved as well. Uh, they're also they've also improved the widgets resizing, making it easier 
uh, to resize widgets on your desktop, so that's nice. They've added some real progress bar. That's what they call it, real progress bars in Discover. Uh, this is actually pretty interesting because one of the things that Discover had a problem with previously is that the progress bars didn't really make any sense, and they didn't really uh, express accurately what the progress of any particular task was. was. But the uh, but it's not necessarily Discover's fault overall because you could talk about like the we talked about in the latest episode of Destination Linux that progress bars are never accurate ever, and it's kind of funny how long we've been using computers and how terrible progress bars have been the entire time and still kind of are now. So, yeah. Anyway, you should check out Destination Linux episode about that topic because that's pretty interesting. And also, they've got an, uh, improvements to the notification system, making it so that when you have, you can detect presentation mode and it will automatically do, do not disturb feature turned on for notifications. That's a weird way of saying that, but you know what I mean. They've also made some improvements to how the task manager works with the middle clicking, so you can uh, create new instances and close different apps using the middle click button on your mouse, as well as made some more configuration options for the desktop background so that you can now choose the order of images in a wallpaper slideshow rather than just being random. So that's pretty interesting. And some more accessibility features have been added to let you move the cursor with the keyboard using lib input and etc. But the biggest thing for me personally is they added a nightlight feature natively for the X11 version. So they've had that version, the nightlight feature available for Wayland users for a little while, but it didn't work on X11. Now the latest version of 5.17 does add this, and that is really nice to see because this is a... A, a, a feature that isn't really that important. It doesn't seem like it'd be that important, but it's very impactful for me at least where at nighttime I can turn the, you know, the bright lights of my system down and also remove the blue light so that it's, you know, nicer to my eyes at night, you know, that kind of thing. It's really nice to see that they're adding that to the system. So if you'd like to learn more about KDE Plasma 5.17, and if you'd like to give it a try, you can uh, find links in the show notes. Uh, also, just to be clear, uh, Kubuntu uh, 19.10 does not have 5.17 because it came out basically the same day, so there's really no way for that to be included. However, it does. they are going to have 5.17 in the Backports PPA option, so if you do install Kubuntu 19.10, you can still get 5.17. It'll just be using the, that, that Backports PPA. So yeah, uh, links to KDE Plasma 5.17 will be in the show notes. Up next in the show is some interesting news related to a security vulnerability in sudo. So sudo is a, a function of Linux that allows you to elevate your privileges of your regular user so that you can do things that require administrative rights or root user privileges, basically. And sudo means super user do, as in root would be super user. And this is something that's interesting because there's been a lot of talk from various different outlets about how this the sudo app or sudo vulnerability is like just ridiculous and it's catastrophic and you know Linux is, is suffering and all this other stuff. You know, there's every time there's anything, any kind of security vulnerability that's found remotely attached to Linux, even sometimes when it has nothing to do with Linux, it will still be presented as Linux is vulnerable and no one should use it and blah blah. Because they'll like people talk about Linux security and how it's so great yet, but here's an example of where it's not that kind of thing happens. And what's weird is that almost always they will talk about how it's a hor it's a horrible thing that's happened and it's just catastrophic. But then reality is that it's not a big deal and it's not even that big of an issue in terms of security. Well, that's true in this case too. 
because this was got a lot of hype and it's basically not that big a deal. There now the the vulnerability itself is a serious vulnerability. However, the likelihood that people were going to be affected by this is ridiculously small. So, for example, uh, the software developer and senior engineer at Quest Software and also the maintainer of open source Sudo project, Todd Miller, says most Sudo configurations are not affected by the bug. Non-enterprise home users are unlikely to be affected at all. He also says, I'm not aware of any vendors who ship a stock Sudo with, with, uh, with a file configuration that would be affected. Now, what he means is related to like what needs to be done in order to be um, vulnerable to this problem. So, for example, the the sudo user group or the sudo user group must give a user the right to use sudo, but doesn't give the privileges of using it to run root commands. So, that part's weird. But you also have to have like including uh, in addition to that. You also must be have it configured to allow a user to run commands as an arbitrary user via the all keyword in a run as specific specification. So basically, by default, nothing ships all with a as the keyword for the run as specification. So there's no reason that this really is a big deal. Now it is possible that some server server man had changed this to make it more likely to happen, or you know that could that, someone can manually go in it, but. Uh, as Miller, as Todd Miller says, that he's not aware of any vendor that ships it that way with that stuff set up. So pretty much probably no one is affected. There might be some here and there that did it manually. But as for, if you've never changed anything, you're pretty much fine. But if you'd like to check it out and as far as you know, test it for yourself, I'll have a, uh, a command in the show notes that will let you know how to run the test to see if you are vulnerable. If you are vulnerable, it will it will show you some inform it'll show you some data. If you aren't vulnerable, it will just you know be empty. And uh, yeah, more than likely you won't be vulnerable. But I have that that command in the show notes anyway, just in case you'd like to check it out. So yeah, uh, sudo is uh, was has a vulnerability. However, it's already been patched, and pretty much all distributions have already released the patches. So everybody who's updated recently will have that have that patch. So you should update regardless but you're probably not affected anyway. So, yeah. Let's get on to the next topic. Next on the show is some really interesting news, and that is Project Triton, which was based on FreeBSD, is now dropping FreeBSD in order to move to Linux. Now, this is a rather unique and uh, pretty... I think it might even be the first uh, BSD-based project that has switched to Linux like this, Uh, so it might even be the only one, really. Um, but apparently it's coming from the fact that they, there's hardware compatibility issues, uh, package availability issues, and just being slow, uh, you know, for the for the just times of like, just slow to change things. And that's why, apparently that's why they are switching to Linux as the base so they can get improvements in all those facets. One example for FreeBSD was that they had an issue where they were upgrading uh, some a package for Telegram, and the after they did the upgrade, it was still many, many re- releases behind. So they decided that they wanted to transition away from that to use a different platform. And after testing many, many things, they decided to that they will be switching to Void Linux as the base for their next version. So uh, this is actually a version that's going to be like the current version that they have released of, will be supported through April 2020. But starting in Janu- January 2020, you'll have the option of moving to their Linux base because that will be released sometime in January. 
So that will be pretty interesting. I, I don't I don't know of any other project that's done that kind of transition from one base to another in the sense of that that big of a change. So I am very interested to see what happens here. But there's actually they say that uh, for a small preview of what's happening, they say that here's we're already experiencing faster boot times, daily app updates, newer hardware drivers, and Bluetooth support in the new version of Project Crichton. So. They say, we'll also post more information and details about these changes in the near future, so stay tuned. So that's it's pretty interesting because they're also going to be moving the Lumina desktop from a BSD base to the Linux base because Project Trident also makes Lumina desktop. So this is pretty interesting to see what happens here because uh, previously I really had no interest in using Tri Project Trident because it was based on BSD. But now that it's coming to Linux, I am definitely interested in checking it out. So if you are too... I'll have a link to this their um, OS migration uh, article or release notes or whatever uh, to uh, in the show notes for this. And whenever they do release their first version based on Linux, I will definitely cover it on the show because I'm very interested in trying it out myself. So, links in the show notes. Up next in the show is some unfortunate information from Samsung. So, Samsung has announced that the Linux on Dex project is dead. So, they will be ending the project pretty soon. And, well, they technically already ended it, but it is still technically possible to use if you have a device that supports it. So, uh, anyway, if you're not aware, the Linux uh, on Dex project from Samsung was a way for you to take your Samsung device, whether it was a tablet or a phone, and connect it to a TV or a monitor of some sort and have a fully functional version of Ubuntu. Now, it wouldn't be a full version of Ubuntu. It would be a slightly modified version that works in, like, a containerized style, but it would support all of the you know typical applications that you want to run and everything like that. So it was a fully functional version of Ubuntu. Uh, so they, they actually said the way they described it was Samsung DeX lets you turn your Galaxy devices into a PC-like experience with a single cable. Now, this is a really cool project, and it's a shame that it's going away because it had a lot of great features and a lot of, it had a lot of great potential. It also had some issues, but we'll get to that in a second. So this is what they say uh, for in the email that they sent out to people who are a part of the Linux on Dex uh, beta system or beta project. They didn't actually post it on their website like they rarely do anything about the system or this project. So they just posted it on or they just sent it emails to people who were involved. So that says, thank you for supporting Linux on Dex beta. The development of Linux on Dex was all thanks to customers' interest and valuable feedback. Unfortunately, we are announcing that at the end of our beta program, we will no longer provide support on future OS and device releases. So it's very important, this piece and this next piece, is that if you have a device that you're already using Linux on DeX, once you update your device to Android OS 10, you will not be able to perform the version rollback to Android Pi. And if you do upgrade to 10, Linux on DeX will no longer work. It's unfortunate because this whole situation is mainly because they weren't, they didn't do very good marketing. They didn't let people know that this was possible. And uh, there was a lot, I mean, we've talked about it on the show before, and a lot of people didn't know about it, but it wasn't a very popular thing because it required you to, in the, in the beginning, it required you to buy a dock that you set your phone into. And then that dock connects to your monitor or your TV or whatever. And now, at the time of this you know, announcement, they were killing it. They have support for just using an HDMI to, to USB Type-C cable, which I wasn't even aware that that was an option until... I saw this announcement that it was going away. So if it was just a cable and they had made that known better, maybe it would have been, you know, more people would have used it because it wouldn't take in that much effort in order to get it to work. 
However, at the same time, uh, it's kind of a, an interesting topic because it kind of talks about convergence in the sense of like using your phone as your desktop as well and how practical that really is. So in this case, it kind of seems like it's not that practical because even with just a cable, you still have to carry around a keyboard and a mouse and maybe even a monitor unless you know where you're going is going to have a TV or something to connect to. It doesn't that doesn't seem like it's that portable, like it's that functional. Maybe if you're going from your ho your home to your work and you are just going to be using those setups with your phone, in theory that could work, I suppose, but it still doesn't seem that practical versus, you know, carrying around a laptop or a tablet. But anyway, I could be wrong about that. If you uh, want to learn more about this topic, I'll have a link to the XDA developer's post about this in the show notes below. Up next in the show is some interesting information from OpenSUSE, and that is that the OpenSUSE OBS, or Open Build Service, now supports building stuff for the Windows subsystem for Linux, or WSL. So they say that the WSL is becoming a critical piece of Microsoft's cloud and data center audience, and OpenSUSE is working on technologies that help developers user distribution, use distributions of their choice for WSL. Users can run the same WSL distribution that they run in the cloud or on their servers. The core piece of OpenSUSE's WSL offering is the WSL APPX files, which are basically zip files that contain a tarball of a Linux system, like a container, and a Windows EXE file, or basically a launcher. So this, the differences here is like the, the OpenSUSE blog explains that building a container is something OpenSUSE's builds, open OBS, open build service, can do, already do fully automatic by means of the Kiwi uh, software. And the launcher, as well as the final APBX, however, is typically built on Windows machine using Visual Studio by the developer. So this makes it possible for to use OBS to build all of that. But there is something that's interesting about it. It doesn't necessarily work exactly because since the files are signed by OpenSUSE and not Microsoft, you'll need to do additional steps to make them uh, runnable on a Windows 10 machine. But anyway, it's still interesting that the OBS has work, has support for the WSL because basically it means it has support for pretty much all formats except for the whole uh, universal stuff like snaps and flat packs and everything. Although it does have support for app images though. Uh, so if you're interested in making an app image, check out the OpenSUSE OBS to, for more about that. Uh, but they also are doing a some information about their name change. At the end of this month, at the end of October, they will be deciding on whether or not to change the name of OpenSUSE. Now, they haven't said about what it might be changing to. They're just talking about whether or not they should change it, and the vote for, the, for that will end the end of this month. Uh, and actually, the, only the people who are able to vote are people who are OpenSUSE members. It's just interesting to see. And they, will, they said that they will announce on November 1st what the result will be. So I will cover that again on the episode whenever they find out whenever we find out if they're actually going to change it or not because I think it's a pretty interesting uh, issue that they are considering because there is some value in changing it and there's also some value in keeping it being associated to SUSE so I'm curious to see what happens there uh, but anyway if you'd like to learn more about the OBS for WSL or check out what they're doing with this uh, you know this name change issue uh, I'll have a link to both of those in the show notes below so before we get on to the rest of the show, I want to take a brief moment to let you know about certain things related to the show and the network. So for example, we have a segment index for this show that is the timestamps that you can switch back and forth between different sections of the show and different topics. And you can find those links in the show notes as well as the description on YouTube and in an RSS feed for the MP3s. So if you 
uh, want to jump around between different topics or you want to change the order of what you listen to and when you listen to it, that, all that kind of thing, you can do so with the segment index. And speaking of the RSS feed, we have an audio version of this show that is available in an RSS feed. It's also available in most podcatching apps, uh, so podcast apps like Podcast Addict and so on and Pocket Cast and everything like that. It should be available on all these platforms. If you're using a service or a platform that it's not available on, please let me know. Uh, it's All you can do is search for This Week in Linux and it should be able to be subscribed to there. If you find a platform that it's not on, please let me know so I can fix that immediately. Uh, because it is very important for me to have it on everything. And I'm pretty sure I'd have it on everything, but I might have missed one here or there. So also, if you'd like to contribute in another way, you can do so by becoming a patron. And you can become a patron on uh, tuxedos.com slash Patreon or tuxedos.com slash sponsors, and where you can actually contribute to the show directly, uh, monetarily, and on a monthly basis, which helps me spend more time making this show. Now, if you're not aware, that takes like, 20 hours to 30 hours every week. So if you are willing to help me out on, you know, spend, you know, contribute a dollar or two dollars here or there once a month, it would be very much appreciated, uh, appreciated. And, uh, you know, just to, um, people who are already patrons of the show, thank you very much. It means a ton to me. And uh, it's really hard to express exactly how much it, it means to me. So uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So if you want to contribute to the show without actually becoming a patron, it's still possible by doing affiliate links. So if you want to you know, purchase something on Amazon and give uh, Tux Digital uh, Channel a, com a commission for doing it, or if you like pur purchase a, a bundle from Humble Bundle or a VPN service from Private Internet Access, if you use the affiliate links that are available at tuxdigital.com slash affiliates, you can actually contrib contribute to the show that way, which is also very more, very important. And also want to touch, let you know about the Telegram and Discord servers for the Destination Linux network. You can go to destinationlinux.org slash telegram and slash discord to get to those uh, the servers and the, the Telegram group. And what's really cool is the Telegram group has just reached over 1,000 users, so that is awesome. Uh, and speaking of Destination Linux, there's the latest episode of Destination Linux is coming out uh, pretty soon. Actually, I think in tomorrow or the next day after. Uh, so be sure to check that out because we had, uh, unfortunately we had Zeb was uh, not available to be on the show that week, but he was, what's really cool is that he was at the Og Camp uh, conference, which he'll be able to let us know and like give us information and talk to us about it the next week after that. But in his place, we had a special guest host uh, from with Wendell from Level 1 Techs. So that was really cool. And be sure to check out that episode if you're interested in that. So yeah, let's get to the rest of the show. Up next in the show is the latest release of Antics Linux. So this is Antics 19, and it is a is based on Debian Buster, but it doesn't use systemd or libsystemd0 to run on Debian. So it's basically a systemd-free version of Debian if you're interested in that. It's also a very, very, very lightweight distribution because it uses something, at least it's like IceWM, Fluxbox, Openbox, that kind of thing, as options for running the system. So if you want a really, 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 really lightweight distribution, this would be one of those things. And also they have some uh, improvements to some various different aspects, some, some package updates. They've improved some theme stuff with uh, Arc, Evo Pro theme. Uh, they changed the pap uh, papyrus icons, and they've got some new wallpaper artwork and that kind of thing, which is really nice because those icons are really nice, and Arc theme is a really good theme. Uh, so it's nice to see that they're you know working on some polishing up of the distro. Uh, because most distributions that are like heavily lightweight don't focus on any kind of polish, 
and uh, or as far as like how it looks. So it's really cool that they are. And they've actually done a lot of interesting things because they have a lot of custom applications that I wanted to cover because I've covered Antics before in the show, and I think that Antics is a really cool distribution, but they've done some things that I didn't even know about until recently. I'm not sure if they introduced it in this release, but uh, they've actually got this new uh, package, these couple packages. One's called uh, Streamlight-Antics. It allows you to stream videos with very low RAM usage. They also have one called one-to-one assistance dash antics uh, remote access help application and they also have one-to-one voice antics which is a voice chat between two pcs via an encrypted mumble server so that's really interesting and i want to see how this works because having like the remote access tool and the uh, one-to-one chat voice chat tool i want to see how those work together because not together but how these work in general because that's pretty interesting and uh yeah so I'm going to check that out pretty soon. If you'd like to check it out as, as well, I'll have a link to Antics 19 release notes in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the latest release of the RPM package manager, which is a Red Hat package manager. And uh, 4.15 was this release. There's been more than two years in development and actually an extra half year for testing for this release. And this new this release has a new wide range of new features, including faster parallel builds, support for various different statements such as the LIF, LFOS, and LFARC uh, statements in the RPM spec files, new patch list and source list sections, experimental support for non-privileged operation in the Chirrut environment, and of course, many bug fixes and such things, bug fixes and improvements overall. You can actually find more details if you'd like in the, and I'll have a link to the show notes, wait, a link to the release notes in the show notes if you'd like to learn more. Up next in the show is the first of two Google-related topics, and the first one is not so good. The second one is, I mean, kind of good, but more like it will be good. We'll get to that in a second. So first of all, Google has removed WireGuard and the AND OTP app from the Google Play Store. So the AND OTP app is the Android OTP or one-time password authenticator app. And WireGuard is a v- VPN protocol type app allowing you to do a VPN, a secure VPN tunnel through your phone. And this was actually, both of these apps were removed for having a donation link in their app instead of using the in-app purchasing from Google Play. So this is, a, apparently they violated payments, uh, payments policy from Google by, you know, allowing people to donate stuff rather than going through their purchasing process of in-app purchases and whatnot. Even though there's the application itself is open source and free and there's they weren't paying for any feature or anything, it was just a way to donate to the development. But uh, Google wasn't involved in that donation uh, financial, financial transaction, so they don't like that. They want to be involved in everything. So uh, apparently that's why it was removed. And the, the But it is good news that the apps are back in the store because, well, they agreed to remove the donation links. So the only reason they're back is because they removed the donation links to get the apps back in. Now they're back. So Google won this battle. But at the same time, um, I'm talking about it. So if you use WireGuard or and OTP, then be sure to donate to them and let them know that you use it and appreciate their work. So there you go. Up next in the show, Google has unplugged the AMP project in that they are moving it to the OpenJS Foundation. So it's joining the incubation program for the OpenJS Foundation, which just means that basically Google is handing over 
the project to the community because there's been a lot of concerns around the project because it was tied to Google directly in the way that it pretty much controlled the development of AMP and every everything related to AMP. So it was just like, we don't want you controlling a format, a framework, or anything that is fundamentally utilized in the inter in the internet. So like basically what AMP was, or it still is really, but what AMP is, is a type of, it's a type of programming and development for the web that allows you to have uh, better performance, uh, better caching, and also many other things that makes your website load faster on a phone. Now, this is a really cool thing, and it's very, it's very good that they made it, but at the same time, it's Google that really controlled it in every way. Even the fact that at one point they were actually pushing google.com slash amp versions of your website rather than the actual domain of your website. They fixed that last year, but at the same time, the fact that that was ever done is a sign that you know Google's trying to use this as a, as a land grab, essentially. But it seems like now they're trying to you know pull, pull away from that, making people think that they're not that doing that, and so that's good, I suppose. Uh, they're still... They still have heavy control in terms of AMP, though, uh, because they are they're giving it over to the OpenJS Foundation, which is a which is connected to the Linux Foundation, which they support financially on both ends of the OpenJS and the Linux Foundation. So it's worth noting that they are a platinum member of both uh, the OpenJS and the Linux Foundation. I'm pretty sure they're both. Uh, but it also means they have significant financial support for the those that project still, which means they can be expected to still have some influence over the AMP governance. So they're moving AMP to an open source governance. They they officially announced this last year, but are now finally doing it. So I guess that's good. But at the same time, they also said that they're going to um, essentially keep everybody who's working on it from Google. All the employees that are contributing full time to AMP will continue to do so. From uh, Google, will continue to pay them to work on AMP, even though they don't own it anymore, which is which is good because it is important to have the continued support and development of it. Uh, and at the same time, it's good that Google no longer owns it anymore because that was pretty problematic if they were to own it because having support for H AMP, AMP HTML would be it's, it's kind of like a burden on publishers and a constraint on web design because Google's guidelines stated that users must be able to experience the same content and complete the same actions on AMP pages as on the corresponding canonical pages where possible. So it limited what you could do and this created an issue because it was limiting uh, what the develop what designers and developers could do because AMP was controlling that. So having them really be the focus of the, the the controllers of the framework and the and the language itself is very problematic because whatever they decide to do the entire internet would be at their whim if they implemented amp so it's good that they're you know putting it out to open source so anyway uh one of the things like currently right now is that while they are handing it over to the open js foundation it's not really done yet the amp, there, even the frequently asked question about from the uh, the amp site where they announced this, it says the amp runtime is hosted on the same infrastructure as the Google amp cache. Doesn't this present present serious issues? 
and they say the end goal is to separate the AMP runtime from the Google AMP cache. The project is currently in the incubating stage and project leaders are still determining the next steps. So at some point it's going to be separated, but it currently isn't separated, so Google still has the control. And considering they said that they were going to be doing this a year ago and they just now did it, who knows when they're actually going to release control. But yeah. Up next in the show is some really cool information for the gamers out there. The uh, Chiaki is a open source remote play client for the PlayStation 4. And it makes it possible for you to stream your PlayStation games from your PS4 to your Linux machine, whether it's a desktop or laptop or whatever. So you can play those games on your Linux machine through these, uh, the local network for Wi-Fi so that you can you know, you play, use your PlayStation 4 to run the game and then stream it to your machine. So there's many reasons why this is cool, and I'll get to those in a second. But what's really one of the features that's really nice that they have is that everything necessary for the full streaming session to work is included in the initial registration and wake up of the console. So as soon as you activate the console with this software, everything's ready to go to make it work for streaming and usage. So that's pretty cool. They also have a lot of things that they're working on that's not work that's not works yet, um, like for example, uh, RumblePad support, uh, Touchpad support, configurable key bindings. All those things are being worked on right now, but are not available yet. So it's not a, a complete uh, applic- a complete client, but it's still really awesome. And one of the best parts is that it's an app image, so you can just download the app images and get started really quickly. So that's awesome. And so this is great for those who want to stream games from their uh, PS4 to their PC, but it's also a great tool because it makes it easier to record your games and then stream them to Twitch or YouTube or whatever through OBS. So it makes it possible for you to uh, play a play. Uh, it's, it was kind of difficult to record the games on a PS4 prior, and this makes it much easier to do so because you can just use OBS to stream directly to uh, whatever streaming platform you want to including Mixer, if for some reason you want to use that. But anyway, and Ryan from Destination Linux actually got this working and showed it to me in a like demonstration, and it's pretty cool. Like, it works quite smooth and way more than I expected it to, so that's pretty awesome. So if you'd like to check it out, uh, Florian Markle made this and has made it available on GitHub, so if you want to check it out, I have a link to the uh, Chiaki uh, client, open source remote play client for PlayStation in the show notes below. And lastly this week, we're going to talk about some Humble Bundles because there's some pretty interesting bundles this week. And one of them is a Philosophy for Geeks book bundle by Wiley. And this is pretty cool because there's a lot of different ways of like looking at different how different uh, well games or sci-fi shows and comics and how they address uh, philosophy. And it kind of like a, it's kind of like an examination of philosophy in these different titles. So, for example, there's some uh, philosophy in Iron Man, uh, X-Men, the the Avengers, Final Fantasy philosophy, uh, even things like games like Bioshock and philosophy. Um, there's uh, What's really interesting is there's even TV shows like Arrested Development and uh, The Office and how they handled philosophy. And they, like they have, like, um, you know, Watchmen, Superman, Wonder Woman, even Dungeons & Dragons. And, like, it's pretty, pretty interesting. And, of course they have the requirement for any kind of philosophical geek-based thing, Star Trek. So if you're interested in checking out any of these, there's quite a few uh, that I I think they're actually all pretty interesting. Uh, Battlestar Galactica, Batman, Game of Thrones, and many more. So if you want to check it out, I'll have a link to that in the show notes. 
But moving on, we also have some other books that are based on computer productivity and coding. And this is a interesting thing because uh, this is a variety of different types of books that are teaching uh, development through Python, uh, C programming, and many more like multimedia web design, 3D printing, uh, software testing, artificial intelligence in the 21st century, second edition, uh, AutoCAD, uh, Python 3 overall, TensorFlow, HTML5 programming, and many, many more. So if you're interested in any kind of programming stuff like this or just the overall computer productivity, I'll have a link to uh, in the show notes for that. And the final Humble Bundle is the Develop Your Own Games Bundle by Springer. Now, this is uh, pretty interesting because it allows you to make all kinds of different games. It's not about um, any particular gaming like engine exactly or gaming language. It's a, ver- it's a variety of different things. So, for example, they have uh, Java game development, learning uh, Android game development for with Unity, uh, pr- practical video game bots, developing games on the Raspberry Pi, turn-based multiplayer games, uh, Raspberry Pi, Pi game, and, other, and uh, Python uh, game development, and many, many more like 2D games with Unity uh, using the Construct 2 framework. Even one that's pretty interesting, making games or building games with Ethereum smart contracts. That's pretty interesting. So anyway, if you'd like to learn more about this one, I have a link in the show notes below. And also before we move on, I wanted to you know let you know that this is a... Uh, all of these uh, Humble Bundles are, aff- are going to use affiliate links in the description. So this allows you to contribute to the show by uh, getting a sm- using these links, which gives a small commission to the show and to the channel. So if you'd like to do that, I would very much appreciate it if you use the links below because it definitely helps the channel. And uh, yeah, so there you go. Humble, bundle, humble Book Bundles for productivity, coding, game development, and philosophy for geeks. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. And also don't forget to ring the bell. If you'd like to support the Tux Digital channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, sponsors, Patreon, and many others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com contribute. Or you can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to tuxdigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere. Or if you're in Europe, you can go to tuxdigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere EU for shipping inside of Europe. We also have ways to contribute without any cost to you by using our affiliate links. You can find places for like Amazon, Private Internet Access, Humble Bundle, and many more by going to tuxdigital.com slash affiliates. And if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux, as I'm a co-host of that show. And also, just so you know that this particular episode, Zeb was not available for the show, so he was at OggCamp. And uh, we got a special guest, which is Wendell from Level 1 Tech. So if you've ever heard of that channel and you're just in checking out a podcast with him, then be sure to uh, tune in to the next episode, which will be coming out very soon. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tanel with Tux Digital and the Destination Linux Network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux.